0: Hello and welcome back to our podcast. Today, my guest is Laura Reber. Laura is a school psychologist and the founder of the online tutoring site Progress Parade. Laura graduated valedictorian with a bachelor's in psychology from Truman State University, and she earned her specialist in school psychology from Illinois State University. She has been working as a school psychologist for over a decade. At her company Progress Parade, Her and her tutors provide one-on-one online tutoring with hand-picked specialists for students who have been diagnosed with ADHD, learning disabilities, executive functioning challenges, autism, and more. Laura closely works with a team of school psychologists and specialized teachers to create personalized approaches for homework support, academic intervention, homeschooling, unschooling, and more. With her team of tutors, she has successfully supported over 1,000 students in turning learning challenges into life changing achievements. Today, I'm super excited to talk to a school psychologist to get a closer look at how children with challenges to pay attention in the classroom are quickly singled out and considered to have ADHD. Without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Laura.
1: Thank you. I'm excited to be here.
0: Me too. You know, I've never talked to a school psychologist. Um, I've heard about them. I I always thought, man, like, you know, if you're a school psychologist, you're either super pro, uh, what I call single them out, label them, let's get them medicated and get the classroom conformed, right? Or you're on the other end, which you're more careful. But then I thought, wait a minute, after we talked first, there could be the sort of middle ground where you want to do good. And then you kind of caught in the middle. And I, and I just want to start off by asking you, how did you uh, choose or why did you choose to become a school psychologist?
1: Yeah, it's interesting, um, your perspective, because I when I chose to be a school psychologist, I don't think I quite knew what I was getting into. I think I thought, well, I know I thought um, I'll be able to help all these students in school. And part of the reason that I wanted to be a school psychologist was because prior to studying school psychology, I was working in foster care as a case manager. And I was really frustrated by just kind of lack of being able to help the kids with just so many different factors and I thought the school is perfect because they're stuck there eight hours a day it's a good opportunity to help students I really didn't understand that the general perception and general expectation of the role is a lot of testing. Um, So that was a surprise to me as I kind of entered. Got further into grad school and entered the field, but the reason that I wanted to be a school psychologist was for that reason I wanted to help students at school I wanted to. be in the school setting because I think that's a really great opportunity to support kids because most kids go to school all day Um, so it's a great opportunity to provide supports to students all sorts of students. So. Mm-hmm.
0: and, and when you first, uh, when you studied to become a school psychologist, at what point did ADHD enter your life Or at what point did you notice or hear about this thing? And then what did you learn about it uh, during school? If sort of a nutshell.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say it entered my life before grad school for school psychology, especially in that foster care world. A lot of our foster students were, well, foster kids were diagnosed with ADHD and, Actually, a whole slew of diagnoses. I think it's interesting that so many times when evaluations happen, there's just kind of one disability label stacked onto another. It's kind of like, what does this even mean when there are, so, you know, some students end up with so many different diagnoses. Um, some, which I think would be hard to tease apart from one another. I mean, anxiety in kids can be really hard to discern from ADHD, for example. So, um, yeah, so I think that's kind of when I first saw it in, in practice, uh, we certainly learned about ADHD in graduate school as well. And, um, I would say it was a huge part of what we, what I dealt with. As a school psychologist in the schools, and definitely um, in my work through Progress Parade as well.
0: But then, in uh, in in your training or in your uh, uh, studies, was ADHD a big deal, or was it just one of ten things they w- you would get ready to be aware of at schools? Or how did it fit into the whole slew of disorders or things, challenges, disabilities, and so forth?
1: Yeah, in our graduate program, we definitely spent the most time focusing on learning disabilities because learning disabilities are one of the main things that school psychologists diagnose. Um, so I think, and and it's a complex question of what is a learning disability. So there was a lot of time spent on learning disabilities. ADHD, we definitely had time spent on, but it was less than learning disabilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, there are several different under the individuals with disability and education act which is idea there's uh a, several different diagnoses that school psychologists have to be familiar with because those are kind of the portal and under which students get services for special education so it's important to know those different um those different disability labels because that's how students typically qualify for special education is under one of those labels and ADHD isn't one of those. Um, it is typically falls under other health impairment, which is one of the, um, idea labels. So we kind of talked about it in that framework. Some school districts put it more under the emotional disturbance disability label, which is, um, a really strong set of terminology in my opinion, but, uh, So, you know, in my teams, we typically put ADHD under OHI or other health impairment, but I have seen teams put it under um, ED or emotional disturbance as well. So it's it was kind of, that was kind of how it was, I guess, packaged for lack of a, a better term. But um, yeah, yeah. answers your question.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So now uh, when you look at ADHD now, uh, let's say while you were studying while you were at school uh when you when you got out of being you know mainly a school psychologist and now where you're at now what would you say was your progression of how you saw ADHD for what it was and maybe start off with what what you know what what it is what you thought it was and maybe what you think it is now
1: sure yeah i i've thought about the question of what is ADHD a lot but especially since i've been kind of binging on a, a few of your podcasts and preparation for this interview and just kind of wanting to understand more about your other guests and, and how you approach things. Um, so it, I kind of had a chuckle when I thought, like, why is it so hard for me to say what is ADHD, considering that I'm a professional in the field and uh, I work with students. I talk with you know parents every single day who um, have students who have been diagnosed with ADHD. So I kind of laughed at how much of a challenge I was having thinking of that of what it really is uh, or what I would say it is. Um, and I, even from my early days in graduate school, I had trouble saying a student has ADHD. I would always kind of do the workaround where I'm like the student meets the criteria for ADHD. I said that a lot because I'm like, I don't even learning disability, you know, I'm like, I don't, I can't really say I'm not in their brain. I don't know for sure that they have this thing, but I can say for sure that they meet these objective criteria that somebody else has determined. So I, I you know, I, I find myself still today, like using that workaround sometime that, um, oh, your student's been diagnosed or meets the criteria for ADHD. I think because I've always been uncomfortable kind of attaching it directly as saying objectively, this is what they have. Um, it's maybe a small, a small nuance, but That has, I was kind of thinking about like, oh, I think that's why I've always, I think my discomfort with really being able to say what ADHD is, is part of why I've done that or why I've kind of had that little workaround for myself. As far as answering what ADHD is, the way I view it is really as a set of behaviors that we are classifying as ADHD. I know there's a lot of behaviors and, you know, behaviors typical of hyperactivity and attention. I know there's a lot of research and, Debate about brain differences. I don't look at the brain. I'm not a medical doctor, so I don't have an opinion on that. I say this: the behaviors are typically, you know, A, B, and C and attention, hyperactivity. These are the things that people get referred to, and here's how we can help these behaviors. And, you know, at Progress Parade, that's what's important to us. What are the the presenting reasons why the student is coming into us? What kind of supports do they need to be more adaptive in their school or home settings and how can we help them get there? So that's still not like a true definition of what is ADHD, but that's how I think of it.
0: No, that's great. Uh, And I love, and you know, everybody I've asked has their their personal opinion or their medical description or whatever, but it's always slightly different. So I appreciate that. Now, did you, uh, what you said when, when you would encounter a child that, other psychologists might have quickly diagnosed with ADHD. You sort of said, yeah, she or he meets the criteria. W- where do you think that came from, from your own, like I call it the, con- was it the conscience? Was it a, an intuition or did, was there something that just didn't feel right?
1: I think it was a combination of I had a professor in grad school who would say that. And I was kind of like, that seems, that feels more true to me of like what I can actually truly say. It's true. Like if you've said, here's the criteria, well, I can say, sure, they meet those criteria. Like that's not hard to say whether, you know, I think, and I've always, I think it is maybe a little bit of conscience because I've always realized that, you know, we're kind of just, I mean, ADHD is a term that humans made up. It's not like something that exists independently of humans, just like everything that we're doing. I mean, deciding what grade level is, is determined by humans, like deciding what skills are important in school is determined by humans and our society. None of these things are like floating, objective, existing realities. (laughs) You know, they're all human. So I think, um, you know, I've worked with a lot of students and families who find that they are, who are very attached to that label and I'm not trying to take it away from them. I think, I was talking with a friend recently who is an adult and she's been, been, you know, had an ADHD diagnosis her whole life. And she finds it to be something that's like helpful for finding community and understanding herself. And then I found people that find it really disempowering. So I think it's helpful to have both perspectives to kind of help yourself navigate, you know, your diagnoses or what, or what professionals are.
0: are right, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I agree. I mean, I think I had a, an expert recently who said, well, I disagree. It's not a disempowering label to call a child uh, to say that he or she has a disorder. And I would agree if it's an adult, because as an adult, well, even for some adults, it would be hard to stomach that, right? Your self confidence gets affected, how you see yourself. Sure. But But for a five or six year old, eventually and they'll figure it out quickly the way they're treated looked at right to to have a disorder uh to feel like your brain isn't quite functioning as well as other kids' brain that cannot possibly be a positive thing i mean yeah. it, that's my yeah. opinion but you know
1: yeah well i think um i've thought about this a lot and um i think i understand where the well-intentioned disability label came from i think I, I've had the unique, somewhat unique experience of having taught also in, in public schools in Spain. I taught there for a few years and I'm wow. not making any generalizations, generalizations about Spain. It sounds like you have some international listenership. So I don't pretend to be an expert on Spanish school systems. I was in four different schools in Spain and two different regions when I was there in two years. And I will say what we have seems... What I've seen in Spain, what we have does seem to be more along the line of progress, like more progressed. Um, because I saw multiple students who clearly had disabilities, you know, who would meet the criteria for disabilities here, if I'm saying it how I like to say it. Um, and who there, like there was a student, for example, who I I mean. I've diagnosed lots of students with autism. And this student, I could tell you just from looking at him, would meet the criteria for an autism diagnosis. And the teachers were just making fun of him. I mean, they were saying, he's like, he looks like an owl. Like, why isn't he responding? And I just was like, you know, I'm not saying that would never happen here, but um, I think that when I talk to my parents or I talk to people in different generations, they say, well, you know, students were weird, like whatever, like they just didn't get services or, and I think that the disability label was kind of how we had to move from, or how, you know, leadership perceived that they had to move from like just blaming the student and saying they're weird to saying, okay, this is something external. And now we need to help them. But I think we've gotten there and now we're kind of attaching way too much. And it's time to like move on. (laughs) My opinion is that it's time to kind of, move on. And yeah. I think, so, you know, I think that I understand kind of where the focus on disabilities came from. It felt necessary to kind of extract from blaming the child, um, you know, but I do think it's, you know, it's, it's time. I hope that as a society, we can continue to kind of move on the spectrum. So to some, you know, we can talk about some different models that are out there that might be interesting to you, but I was, for example. that.
0: No, absolutely. I mean, that's a good example, right? It's like, it's good to know that maybe a child needs support or has challenges and that's why they're acting quote unquote weird or not like the other kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course it's a very sensitive matter. How do you then, uh, uh, what do you call that? How do you show support? You know, a lot of the the school, like the special ed kind of structures, um, maybe we can talk about that next. Like, how did you like feel about special ed and how students are put in special ed? How did the the students feel? Did they do better? Did they enjoy it? Like um, maybe just give us a little overview of your experience. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, special ed, it's, you don't have to search far to find people really frustrated with special education. Uh, You know, there, it it varies so much based on the school district and the resources the school district has. It varies so much based on the individual school and the leadership in the school. It's hard to say like anything blanket about special ed, although I'm going to, but I know it varies a lot, you know, by, by the individual school. Um, I think one of the things I can, can say about special ed is that there is, there's really limited research on the long-term benefits or effects of special ed, you know, like what happens long-term to students. Um, I think that's a problem. Uh, I think there should be a lot more research about kind of long-term outcomes of students in special education. And there's just a lot of complexities. I mean, I think um, in most of the U S there's, you know, a whole process you have to go through to qualify. And again, then you have to get packaged into one of these, labels under idea, uh, that are really limiting. You know, if you look at the, you know, how most psychologists or most evaluators classify kids with diagnoses is with the diagnostic and statistical manual DSM and whatever version it currently is in, which is the four text revised, but you know, it's, it's constantly changing and the changes or no, sorry, never in the five, but anyway, so it's like, you know, I think, um, everybody has to fit under IDA. So you have to package them in these little boxes. And that's really frustrating. And especially when it's so much more complex than that, than those few, than those few, um, few labels. So, I
0: mean, I mean, would you say that other students, you know, let's say a kid goes to school and then a mid-year or some point they're um, they're diagnosed and labeled? would they go into special ed the following year or would they literally mid year switch them from the regular classroom into the special ed program?
1: Yeah. So their IEP would start pretty much right away. So once they qualify, the services would start right away. Now that's not always putting them in a separate placement. A lot of times it's providing pullout services or, you know, services just depends on what the student needs. It could be services with the speech language pathologist services with the um, social worker services with the, uh I mean, school psychologists don't do many services. We usually test, but I think it's possible. uh And obviously special education minutes as well is part of it. So, you know, I think a lot of people think of special education as a place and it's really a lot of time, it's really should be more thought of as the services that students need Um and, and how, so the services usually begin right away. If they were transferring classrooms that would typically happen that same school year.
0: And and the other kids, uh, what's your experience from other kids suddenly realizing some of their classmates are now in special ed? Uh, or is there a general sense of who special ed kids are on the on the campus? Like, is there like a uh, oh, those are the kids that have trouble or how, how do how do you think students perceive that?
1: Yeah, I think there is, I mean, yeah, there definitely is a perception from other kids of like what, you know, this kid is different and this kid is, I mean, we still hear about kids getting made fun of for being in special ed. Um, I think that is evolving. I think it's getting better. I think there is more of a understanding of, you know, in my experience, it seems like that there's more of an understanding of differences. And I think a lot of the movements around like, um race and equity i think all that's helping you know the whole picture of just understanding diversity and differences um but definitely there still is a stick. well that's a, that's a great point exception
0: i hate to jump ahead but that's yeah. a good point with diversity right like we're we're working really hard to get to this place of like let's accept everyone for the who they are their skin color their culture their backgrounds right um But neurodiversity of like how someone learns, we're still kind of fitting it into we're trying to fit it into a box. Right. So it's almost the same as saying, yeah, you're black, you're Asian, whatever, whatever your your uh, race is. But we're going to have to just treat you like you're white right now. Like it's almost the same thing. It's like, yeah, but we got to standardize things. So why do you think we haven't yet? I mean, it's starting to and I'm sure you've, you through services like Progress Parade uh, that, that you your company is doing uh, online tutoring for, for students. Right. Like what why haven't we yet really embraced, um, in your opinion, neurodiversity that we're all learning differently and that maybe those students are just a little slower. That's how they learn or they don't like math, but they love other things like what what's in the way. Why is that in your opinion?
1: Yeah, I hear so many people answer that question saying, "Oh, well, it's a communication. Like we need these diagnoses for doctors to understand what the kids need, or we need these diagnoses for um, for access to services." And I'm like, "Well, that's a pretty circular argument because <laughs> if, if we only need these diagnoses for access to services because that's what we decided. <laughs> like, this doesn't have to. There right. is a new way." of doing that. And I don't, um, with technology and so many ways of communicating, I don't really buy the whole, like, we need it for doctors to communicate. I'm like, how much would it really be to be like, I have a one pager of like, here's the students, like strengths, weaknesses, what they need. I mean, it still wouldn't obviously capture the complexity of that whole student, but we do, we really need to boil it down to one word. You know, I'm just not convinced by that, but I think that that's what people, that's what people believe. You know, I think yeah. that I think that um, they believe that it's necessary to have labels to access services. And I think a lot of it is because of all the systems that, you know, in which we find ourselves in the school. It's like this is how the school system operates and it's hard to change those things. It takes a long time. Um, I think we can talk a little bit about Iowa because they are they have a different approach to special education, which you might find interesting. And I is more in alignment with how I view it. So there are states that are trying to move in that direction, but um, I think it is all the bureaucracy and, you know, and certainly to get any sort of like like disability services, if you have like more severe needs or or something like in adulthood, then you need, you know, that's how the government is set up essentially. So it's Mm -hmm. hard to change all those processes.
0: Yeah. I mean, what would it be like if we took, let's say, like you said, if we evaluate students based on how fast they learn, what they really like to learn, the, you know, the type of uh, the way they take in information and process it. Right. If we then bunched them together in classrooms where the teacher knows all my students are slow at this, but love this and process this way. Right. To me, that seems already more of a, uh, uh, everybody would get along and everybody would relate and there wouldn't be anybody singled out for the most part. Yeah. Um, it's just, just an idea, right? Of course, I know you yeah. also have ideas how to tell me about your ideas, how we could improve classrooms uh, the way you see it in the U S today.
1: Sure. Yeah. So I think one big thing is class size. I think, um, part of the reason that we have to go to things like disability labels and different, you know, really, which are like heuristics or shortcuts to really understanding what a student needs. Um, you know, because that's what essentially disability label is. It's a way of saying, here's what the student needs in one word, in one word even though it doesn't really accomplish that, but that's, I think the hope or the goal. Um, So I think that that's partially because our teachers are so overwhelmed. Like if they had smaller class sizes, then it would be, I think, more doable to actually look at the whole child and and have less need to depend on heuristics. And I don't think that, or shortcuts, you know, I don't think that that um, necessarily would need to span the whole grade, you know, grade span. I think definitely for younger kids, that's more important. Um than it typically is for older kids. And also there's so much, so much research that, you know, it would be so much worth our investment as a society to have more teachers and smaller class sizes because there's so much research that early intervention pays dividends and div- you know is a great investment. So I think like that is one major thing. I think another thing is just reevaluating the classroom setting and just looking at how, we can make it more align with what kids are experiencing today. I mean, one example I was thinking about recently, which I know I shared with you was, you know, it's funny that we focus so much on kids sitting, like sitting in their desks. And then as adults, we're all trying to get ourselves to stand while we're working because it's, it's actually really hard on your body to to be seated seated, seated all day. So it's like, well, why do I, why do we spend so much time focusing on kids being able to sit? And I mean, I was just talking to, a teacher who was focusing on this kid who couldn't sit and we had to put him at the back of the room standing. It's like, well, I don't understand. Like, what, why. Like, I, I mean, suppose you know, I'm sitting here with this like standing desk, trying to use it more because sitting is bad for me. And, and we're sitting here focusing so much on, on being seated in, and kids being seated in their desks. So I think just an overhaul of looking at the educational setting um, to see what we really need to hold on to and what we can happily let go of would would help a lot. Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, an emphasis on class size
0: is huge, too. Uh huh. Yeah. I wonder what we're going to do next. We're going to put seat belts in those chairs so they can't move, (laughs) you know, strap them down. It's like, really? Well, it all it all comes from the hey, you got to pay attention to what the person in front of you is drilling into you so that later in life you can you know, go get a job and fulfill your role as a productive citizen. You know, I get right. it. Industrial age <laughs> yeah. kind of mentality. Yeah, totally. But I think we're yeah. a little bit past it. I think we're um, past that. Yeah. So, so tell me again, so you would diagnose kids uh, at school, you would have the, them come in for the testing at mm-hmm. school and it would mm-hmm. be based on the same, uh, obviously tests that any psychologist in, in the state would do, right?
1: Yeah, so um, so the main thing I was usually looking at was learning disability. Sometimes we would look at emotional disturbance or other disabilities, but specific learning disability was definitely the one that I was most, common evaluating, most commonly evaluating. And I don't know how much we want to get into this here, but there are some, you know, pretty discrepant. It's a funny word to use, discrepant, but there's some pretty different views with how to diagnose learning disability. And the reason I laughed about discrepancy was because one of them is a discrepancy model. <laughs> so, so that's why I thought it was funny that I was using that term yeah, to, to describe yeah. the two models. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I think, so I don't know how much you want to talk about that, but yeah, the learning disability definitely has to kind of.
0: Well, I'm just blown up. I'm blown away by emotionally the disturbance because what, I mean, what would it, what damage would it be just to use, challenged instead of the yeah, like know. why not right why not say yeah. uh, but anyway that's that's me getting hung up on words but words yeah, no, are very but it's, powerful
1: words are very very powerful they are very powerful uh
0: so the when you were diagnosing the kids they would come in and i was would assume they would do testing in like separate days or would it be all at once or how how off how many minutes or hours would they get tested for
1: it depended on the students and their and their attention levels. I mean certainly if I saw that like waning then we would pause the testing and finish it. Usually two, I would say usually two sessions. Is,
0: two sessions. Yeah, yeah,
1: and usually like under 2 hours, an hour each maybe. Again, for younger students way more. It's like let's just do 40 minutes or 30 minutes, but if they're older, you know, longer sessions.
0: And then you would uh eventually you would uh do your, your work, right? Your assessment, and then write up your um, uh, diagnosis, like your, uh, what do they call it? Report. I can't think yeah. today, your okay. report, and call mm-hmm. in the parents. And then you would sort of break the news and give them the report or email it to them later, right? You, you would be, in other words, would be the end all for the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. It would be like now yeah. you've been diagnosed.
1: Yeah, usually when there's an IEP, um, an individualized education plan meeting, For an initial evaluation or that first evaluation for a student who's going to be potentially qualified for special education, there's an initial meeting with the parents where we say here's the different domains or areas that we're looking at to to evaluate, and then we would get there. We would say here's the different test instruments that we're going to do to evaluate these different areas, and the areas are like not only academic but cognitive, social, emotional, you know, medical. Um, and then each person, so the nurse doing the medical and social worker during the social, and if there's any speech concerns, the speech pathologist does that. And so we get their consent to do this evaluation with these different areas. And then we bring them back when the evaluation is done to go over all the data. And usually how it happened in my district, and I think this is pretty common, is everybody else would give their reports and it would come to me to like break the news about, especially for learning disability. For the learning disability, I was the main... <laughs> You know, the main, the main person to kind of say, um, say that they had a learning disability or that they met the criteria. You're you're like so the well. doctor
0: at the hospital that has to announce that the husband has passed away during surgery. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. what, what, what was the, what was your emotional state of being before you would have to tell, let's say someone that their child has ADHD, like what went through your head as you were seeing the parents sit there before you said Yeah. That?
1: Yeah. I mean, it was hard. I mean, it was hard. Um, especially because in my particular situation, a lot of times I wasn't convinced that they really like had it, not even aside from like this whole discussion, you know, we had students that had to be, re- um, that were really having trouble learning English or my district was mainly second language learners. So they had a lot of trouble learning English. A lot of them had a lot of social or, um, socioeconomic factors that were at play too. So, um, the diagnosis was necessary for them to access services and they it was clear that they weren't making it in the general education environment that they needed the services so I really felt stuck between this rock and this hard place of like well do I not qualify the student and then they just continue to flounder or do I qualify them with this diagnosis which may or may not be what their challenge is I mean their challenge might be socioeconomic it might be let, you know, language and they're distractible because they don't understand what's going on to the same extent that their peers do. I mean, there's just a lot of complicated environmental factors. So, um, you know, usually I would, uh, the team would usually kind of side on the side of getting services because it seems like that's what was needed. Um, and they did meet the criteria as defined, you know, by, by what we were looking at. So, Um, But it, it did, it did create a situation for me where that's why I kind of felt like I wanted to move on to something else because I didn't, it did cause a lot of cognitive dissonance for me. So
0: now it's interesting that you said it was hard for you to tell them, right? Because that tells me that there's a general sense. And I know you and I know this already, but really, if we look at it that way, there's a general sense. I'm about to deliver bad news. Mm-hmm. Now, if it wasn't something heavy or something that, that the parents and the child later in life need to really feel like a, it's a burden to them, if that wasn't the case, then you wouldn't feel heavy. You would just be like, oh, hey, by the way, you need to get some insoles. You know, your yeah, foot's a little right. off,
1: right. no big
0: deal. But I feel like then that's why I always have trouble with a lot of experts who say like, oh, no, it has no influence. It's just a label. And disorder is not a bad word. It's funny because I asked this one guy you know, if, if you were single and somebody asked you in an, in an interview in the street, like, would, would you be open to dating somebody disordered? You'd be like, well, I don't know. Like what? Well, probably not. You right? are, yeah.
1: Like, what is you wouldn't it? be like, like yeah. Oh yeah,
0: I love disordered yeah. of people. Most people. Right. Right. And right. so there's a general sense in, in our society that, like you said, it's a heavy thing to deliver because it's going to land heavy and it just sort of sends this family off into like, Hey, good luck. Like, you may get a handle on this or maybe not, right? And to me, yeah. that's just that's a heavy thing for you. That's a heavy thing for the parents. But now, so you, so you were the one diagnosing them. And then um, what was the difference between you being a school psychologist at school doing it and them going to another specialist? Was there what, yeah. what was the criteria that 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 they would do it with you? What was the, the side? Yes. Yeah, so,
1: yeah. So essentially, um, Coming to me. So any parent can actually request that their school do an evaluation. So in that the school then has to respond, they don't have to do it, but they do have to respond and say, yes, we'll do the evaluation or no, we won't. And if they say, no, we won't, we have to justify why
0: we won't. Is there a cost for for doing it at the school? Does the school charge the parent? No. Okay. There's no cost. And and this is public school. Mm -hmm. So it would actually be a benefit to, um, somebody like that may not be able to afford a test. I mean, some of those tests are like $7,000, right? They're very
1: expensive with
0: insurance, I believe, or maybe a little bit less, but um, so it would be an advantage for them to come to you or to the school and say, Hey, let's test here. Cause it's free. Right. Mm-hmm. Was that because of the type of school, the socioeconomic uh, no, climate? All there? Schools,
1: no? All schools. And actually even um, I, This is, I'm a little unfamiliar with, but I know for sure in Chicago, and I think this is nationwide, even students that are in private schools, the school district still has a responsibility to what this thing, if people want to look it up, it's called child find. They still have to find the children that have disabilities. They're, they're required by law to, to find, it's called child find. They have to find who needs services. So, um, and then pay for it or?
0: Even if district. they're in a private
1: school, they can come to the school district and say, "I think my student has a disability. I'm requesting an evaluation." You're more le- the student. The parent is more likely to get an evaluation if they have some, you know, reasons like some good reasons yeah. why the student needs an evaluation. Um, so that's so I, I would do the evaluations if the parent requested, but more commonly the teacher refers or the student. You know, there's been clear behavioral challenges in school or academic challenges. So now they've been referred by the school to the yeah. school team to test, but if, but actually it's any parent's right in, in, in America to request an evaluation from their good, school. And good, if it is conducted, it's at no cost, so. Yeah.
0: Good to know, yeah. Now, um, were, were there ever times when you would have teachers come to you or maybe not come to you, but say in a, in a break room or somewhere where you were hanging out with teachers, where they would say, oh my God, I have this kid and it's so hard to teach. And like, I'm sure he has ADHD. I'm gonna send them to you. I'm gonna tell the parents or or teachers, sort of the, uh, the scouts, Uh, and I don't wanna mislead the witness here, but like, did you have moments where you were like, like questioning how they would single out children or what their thoughts were around that?
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, again, it depends totally on the teachers. I mean, there were some teachers that you could send students into their classroom and they would just like every single teacher before them complain, 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 that student would just like disappear. So like, not in a bad way, but just a teacher had their environment super structured and i can think of teachers still today that it's like well we're just gonna slip this student into that classroom and we'll never we won't hear from them you know well that's um, a good
0: that's a good point because that's yeah. almost like again a proof that it's not the child i mean right. it's it's partially, of course the child but
1: yeah
0: that if the environment adjusts Huge. to meet some of the needs yeah. that could sit someone down and actually have them listen right
1: yeah, it's huge. So, and then there were certain squeaky wheels, you know, that it's just like they every half their class had a disability. You know, it's just like I, <laughs> like we need we need to look at your classroom and what you're doing um, because you know we're not going to evaluate half of a classroom like that just doesn't make any sense. You know, obviously there's there's um, some environmental things going on in that case. So there is a huge amount of environmental um, variance in people's behaviors. Um, I think all adults even see it working from home versus working at the office. I mean, your environment changes, your behavior changes. That's just how it is. And, um, you know, certain teachers just had better environmental control, more organization, more, much more clear about what behaviors they expected, much less emotional reactions when students did miss, you know, misbehave. So, more redirection, uh more clear consequences for the behavior and, and and those things are all super helpful to all students.
0: Yeah. No, that's great. And and I think that, you know, uh it's kind of like if you have there was a, there was a study done. I f- I forget the exact percentage, but I believe it's over 65% or 70% of teachers are female, right? Mm-hmm. And at least at the time when they did the study. Yeah, and I'm
1: sure it's still, all the principals are pretty male high. And, all the, yeah. <laughs> and all the teachers are female.
0: <laughs> and, and it's interesting what they found was that, of course, uh, women would like their classroom to be run the way it's run when you have other women, you know, because, because women are very much um, uh, the, the study also said, that girls are more likely to be obedient in the, in the early years in the classroom and do what need you know, they're just more patient and mm-hmm. nicer, if you will, in the classroom. Yeah. Right. right. Boys, boys are more rambunctious and that's just, that's how it is. That's biologically yeah. how it's set up. And so I wonder if, you know, having mostly women teach boys, but then the squeaky wheel could be because it's like, oh my God, there's another boy disrupting my peaceful classroom. Let's get him on meds, and then he'll he'll be quiet, and we all get along, right? Not not blaming. Yeah, I'm sure there's blaming. some of that going
1: on. I'm sure that is part of the complex fact. You know, the complexity of the factors. I mean, mm. um, yeah, there certainly are some gender differences, and most teachers are women. Um, and I would say that teachers that had kind of just clear, clear expectations and clearer um, guidelines. And, and you can probably say that, you know, people can have masculine or feminine energy independently of their gender. And I think that kind of clear, um, just kind of to the point and like not messing, you know, just kind of, this is what I expect from you and I'm not going to get mad about it or emotional. I'm just going to say it that maybe, you know, I don't want to be like persecuted for saying masculine energy. I don't think it has much to do no, I understand. With, with, with kind of a person's, you know, the gender they're born with. I think it is kind of channeling the more um the more kind of objective uh sort of behavioral expectations.
0: Uh, absolutely. I'm with you on that. And maybe, maybe since we're on ideas for future classrooms, it might be nice to have. A man and a woman male and female in a classroom right if they're sort of balancing it almost like a set of parents that are in the classroom and they're kind of sharing the tasks and they're making it more like a hey we're in this together and i don't know it's just a crazy idea but why not
1: yeah or having more i think it would be good you know i have parents contact us that are like i want my tutor to be male you know i just want a different kind of perspective in the mix um i think I think it is a disservice to have a lack of diversity of any kind. And I think, um, there is a lack of diversity in schools and gender. I mean, it's all, you know, it's mostly women. So I think that, um, anytime you have, you know, all white or all male or all old people or all young people, um, it's going to be a disservice to, to the group.
0: That's true. And I think,
1: um, that that is true Um, here.
0: Yeah. And I want to just jump. uh, I want to hear more about Progress Parade, your business, which sounds really amazing. Uh, So we'll get into that in just a minute. But what do you think of the ADHD medications and what was your experience being around them? Uh, Were you the ones managing that for them? Were they taking them at school, some at home or at school? Or what was sort of the general medication bubble where you were at?
1: Sure. Yeah, I definitely, my personal view on medication, I'm neither pro nor anti. I think, I do think we tend to jump to it too quickly. I think there's probably a lot of reasons for that. I think, um, I mean, there's a whole, I mean, our medical system pretty much sucks. So that's all another conversation. Um, But I think, you know, there's a, doctors are rushed. They're trying to just get everything done. I mean, doctors will, you know, evaluate, evaluate a student for ADHD with a rating scale. And it's like, that was not an What kind of evaluation was that? And I don't, that's what they're told to do. I'm not, I don't mean to vilify doctors, but I do think that's a problem to give a student a, a diagnosis like that based on a rating scale, which is usually filled out by the teacher who, you know, you can't really say that's, you know, an it might may or may not be a good a good measure. Like they maybe were objective in filling it out, maybe, maybe they weren't. Um, the teacher when they filled out the reading scale that the doctor sent them, which then resulted potentially in a diagnosis. But yeah, I think doctors are, you know, um trying to get the medication, trying to get the problem solved as quickly as possible. And the quickest way to solve the problem with the least amount of effort is medication. Um And I think that teachers are overwhelmed. They have big classrooms. I think if they had smaller classrooms, which is one thing I talked about earlier, then they would probably have more bandwidth to provide behavioral supports and environmental supports. Um, So I think that there's a lot of systemic issues that kind of make medication seem like the most attractive option. Um, Yeah, and I definitely saw it in my schools that I was in, you know, people... Uh, would push push parents to I mean you know ultimately it's a parent's decision and the school is not prescribing medication the school nurse I believe I'm not a nurse but I'm pretty sure she could sometimes administer medication with a doctor's script and with permission about specific times that and dosages that could be administered but um So it was always up to the pediatrician or to to the doctor to like make all the medication decisions, but we would definitely not we, but my school would um, sometimes, you know, kind of try to convince a parent that medication Mm -hmm. was, was the best option.
0: And, and did you notice some of the kids sort of pre and post taking medication? uh, Did you notice any changes, personalities, or anything you can remember around that that became an issue or was talked about?
1: Yeah, I would say that most of the time people thought it was effective. I mean, most of the feedback effective in the sense of getting the student more to comply or getting the behavior more towards what the classroom was looking at. So, I mean, there's no I don't think there's doubt that medications are powerful um, and that, you know, I'm not saying they work for everybody, but that there is an impact. Um, I think there are other things that and, you know, the research says this. I mean, there's, you know. If you read like Mayo Clinic or, or any, you know, probably any reputable kind of overarching source, they're going to say like, medication should be combined with other things, you know, but that's not always like what happens or, you know, um, I mean, yeah, therapy or support from something like progress parade, which is working on your behaviors or, you know, counseling or working with a teacher to modify the classroom, Um, you know, those things or working with the parents on parent education and parent coaching, you know, those are, those are all things that can also make a huge impact and can also make a more lasting impact. If somebody, I mean, even having a student as they get older, like understand their own behaviors and understand what they need and be able to ask for and advocate for themselves. And I mean, those are all, um, you know, on our website progress period, we say we turn life learning challenges into life changing achievements. And those are all things that can help you turn your own learning challenge into a life changing achievement, if you know you I learned this about myself I learned how to advocate for myself i've i've learned um, what I need and um, that's really empowering so.
0: That's great. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, your next chapter. So at some point you, um, had a, I'm going to, I call it had enough or you were ready for a change, right? Yeah. So what What motivated you to leave the field and start your own business, uh, start your online tutoring company. And then, yeah. then then we'll go into that.
1: Yeah. So it was really that huge piece of just my whole job being um, diagnosing disabilities and feeling like, um, when it came to that moment, of I had to say whether the student had a disability or not, you know, and, um, I really do feel that the disability labels, like I would love to read Iowa's position on disability labels. Cause I, it, it resonates a lot with me and they, they have a different model and I've mentioned it a few times, but that's how I felt. Like, I felt like I don't want to give this disability label because I don't really know if it's true. I don't really know that this is what the child really has, but I also, um, you know, can't, not qualify them because they need services so that was I just couldn't deal with that cognitive dissonance anymore so that's when I that was kind of my had at moment of just saying that this isn't the way I want to. I'm either going to emotionally check out to just continue doing what I need to do to do this job or I'm going to leave, <laughs> you know, and I don't want to live the rest of my life emotionally checked out so I'm going to choose the other option so um, I went into um, providing direct services to students with academic needs because that was my favorite rotation in grad school. We learned how to do academic and intervention and I really liked that. Um, I did, I saw a couple of students myself one-on-one personally and saw huge changes with just one-on-one support. And I wish this is what something that made me really believe in small class sizes. I mean, I know we can't have one-on-one class sizes but just even seeing the impact that you can have when you have more time with a student and even if it's a small amount of time really made me a believer in that. Um, So yeah, I just kind of decided to make it what I do. So then I hired other special educators, other school psychologists, reading specialists, learning specialists. And, um, you know, our focus is really hearing, you know, some parents really believe that the diagnoses are helping them. Others don't have diagnoses and just describe specific behaviors. We can work with either one. We just need to know what your student needs, what your goals are, and then um, can help, can choose the specialist that really has that background that can help, help your student meet, meet those goals. So.
0: And you have, uh, what would you say percentage wise? How many students on average have ADHD or autism or some form of, uh, of our students? Yeah. What we call 90%. it. Emotional disturbance. 90%. Yeah.
1: It's cause it's, a, it's our specialty. So that's people that find us are usually looking, looking for that. So.
0: Yeah. And you said you've helped over a thousand students. Um, mm-hmm what are some of the the feedback that parents give you that like, is it early on? Is it, does it take quite a while? And what have you heard?
1: Yeah. So the, and parents, this is a, this is an FAQ I get from parents is like, how long is it going to take? It totally depends on the student. You know, some students need a lot of practice and reiteration. Some students pick it up and, Run with it. Um, I usually tell parents if you don't see anything within six to eight weeks, then we need to revisit the match or something that we're doing. We should see some. If you're doing at least weekly sessions, we should see some impact within two months. Um, so yeah, but it is you know I um, especially if we're looking at you know executive functioning coaching, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with. Uh, if we're looking at changing some of those organizational behaviors or some of the behaviors like time management, and study skills. Um, I, the way I described it and to be clear, we are not providing therapy, but I do see it as kind of therapy adjacent where it, it is like more of a behavioral skill. Like it's not just a straight act. I'm not just teaching you to read. I'm teaching you new behaviors. Um, so that takes time. I mean, it takes time to get into new habits. It takes time and feedback. Um, And we have to earn the students trust, too. I mean, some students come in and they're like, I'm not sure that you really know what you're talking about, (laughs) you know, so I think once we can kind of show them that, hey, here's something I taught you, it helped, then they're more likely to, to trust that the other stuff that we tell them might be worth something, too. So that takes some time, too.
0: That's great. Uh, I do want to hear a little bit about Iowa. It's come up a couple of times. Tell me, what is their, what is their main, in a nutshell, what are they doing differently?
1: Well, I would love to just read their ad, ad, uh, position Please. on disability categories. So the yeah. Iowa Department of this is from their website. The A- Iowa Department of Education has adopted the position that disability categories or labels across all ages are not needed in the educational setting for the following reasons. One, the use of labels does not identify an individual's unique needs. Two, labeling encourages the perception that all individuals in a category have the same characteristics. Three, a label in and of itself does not provide educators with information regarding the individual's instructional needs. Educators' expectations based on labels may influence the performance of the students. Labeling, in most cases, is is negatively loaded terminology and may be permanently stigmatizing. Labels put the burden of failure on the student and the use of labels may become the basis for assigning an individual or restricted services then required. So- yeah. I so, am moving to,
0: I'm moving to Iowa. Yeah. <laughs> let me, let me go on Zillow and look up what they got in well, terms think, of houses. Well,
1: you in California, I'm sure you could afford a, quite a different house than I was. Oh my God.
0: <laughs> that sounds amazing though. That's, um, I'm going to, I'm going to check that out because I knew somewhere it had to exist that somebody said, guys, this yeah. can't be a good thing. At least, and even me, I'm not anti, uh, Having a shorthand to describe challenges that a kid has, so we can support them, it's more like when you look at a label like ADHD. I'm just like, can we not call it a disorder? Can we call yeah. it a a challenges yeah. challenge of attention in a classroom yeah. setting, or yeah. whatever? Right? Yeah. Um, can can the label even be like uh, a customizable? Does it have to be the same? Right. You know? Right. Maybe maybe just keep the categories the same, but. I don't know. There's more that, that can be done, you know?
1: I agree. Well, when I read that, you know, the first time I read it, I was like, yes, this is exactly my concern. It's not like I'm trying to say like, you know, people shouldn't get services or that people don't have different needs. It's just like, why are we so focused on these labels? And, um, you know, so in Iowa, it's, it's the only state that's this way, but, um, you know, essentially you're just considered an eligible individual based on your, um, if you have needs that need to be met, that can't be right. met in the general education setting. So you're an eligible individual, <laughs> like that's what you are. Like,
0: hey, <laughs> you don't, you don't have to have a label, yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: sounds pretty awesome to me, eligible yeah. individual. Wow, yeah. that's that's really cool. Um, you know, it's interesting because the the whole like, uh, uh, you know, labeling kids with with disorder and all that stuff. And we say, well, it's a shorthand and it's not, it's not really damaging to our kids. And I would say it's not going to be in the future. Once we know how to parent and raise healthy beings, right. That are confident mm-hmm. Then it might not be, then it might roll off of your shoulder. Like, yeah, I got this thing, whatever I'll beat yeah. it. But the yeah. way, the way it stands as of today, we have so much, like there's, there's just, I mean, look at the divorce rate, you look at crime, you look at all these things we got work to do before we can just throw these things around and right. expect, expect the kids to just grow out of it. Grow you out know? Of it
1: yeah. Or bounce back or whatever. Yeah. Right. Been, um, I think that, yeah, there's no, it would be so easy to take a look at the language that we're using too. I agree with you that um, it seems like a really simple <laughs> band aid to at least get us through to our better society. <laughs> You know. Maybe
0: maybe I need to call some people in Iowa, get get their legislator on board and say, hey, let's change it in the country, at least, you know?
1: Yeah. I definitely.
0: mean, they did it at a I'd state be level.
1: That. Yeah.
0: That's yeah, pretty impressive. There's nothing,
1: there's nothing in the um, federal, the IDEA act that I referred to a few times that says there has to be a label. They have criteria, but labeling actually isn't one of them. So um so Iowa did it, you know, right. So,
0: and, yeah. and I love I love what you said earlier, like I think that's a good distinction is that you can tell someone that they fit the criteria based on the DSM, which was created by, you know, eight human beings written and changes by, all
1: the time, changes yeah.
0: all the time. The name's been changed over years, many times. So well, it's, and that's
1: actually an embarrassment I had that I said the wrong number and I'm like, oh geez, like people yeah. are gonna hear this and just totally discredit me. And I'm like, I don't even use the DSM anymore. So I don't know what you know even on anymore.
0: And does it really matter? Because if you yeah. look at the current one, like you'd have to compare both of them to see what changed and you know who's yeah. gonna do that. Well, and then, then the it's like we're
1: not even just on four for a while. It was four text revised. It's like, all right, well, it's not that really five? Like, right. you know, like
0: it's like, whatever, yeah. um, what's well, not whatever, but it's, as it, it's like, really, when it comes down to it, it is a written text, uh, that human beings wrote, made.
1: Mm-hmm. you know,
0: made up, I always say and ADHD it was a super
1: it, scientific process to make the DSN. It was basically, you know, consensus of professionals. So it's like, well, that's not, yeah. you know, that's not super scientific as far as uh, look at science. Yeah.
0: And I always say like ADHD is made up and people tell me like, Oh no, it's not made up. And then I said, no, I'm not saying that pharmaceutical companies invented it to make money. Although wink, wink, they're, they're sure not hurting, but it's made up as a term. Just like, like you said, just like a chair is a chair because we decided to call it that it's not a chair in Italian. So, so it's not the same word, you know, it's made up. Mm And so well, and I think um, when
1: you learn new languages, you especially see that because you're like, wow, they're calling. I mean, I remember the first time studying Spanish, I'm like, they call, they use the same word for dove and pigeon. I'm like, but in English, those are a dove's this like beautiful white. You know, to have yeah. a wedding cake and a pigeon is like a street rat that flies. So like, those yeah. can't be the same word, you know, right. but they are, I mean, essentially the same bird I learned. So it's like, you know, language is powerful. It, you
0: know? it is. It is. And yeah. I, and I, and I appreciate that you see it the same way. It's hard to find people experts. I mean, you're a school psychologist. You're, I think a pretty good expert on, on, ADHD and, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, learning disabilities and challenges. And it's hard to find experts who, who get that. And, and look, yeah. I'm not saying that invalidates all the struggles people are having. Those are real. It's just that the, the way we're going about it is antiquated and no one's yeah. willing to stop and say, you know what, we, we gotta overhaul Move this. Yeah. We gotta, it's not we, working. We, we
1: gotta follow Iowa's lead and, you know, yeah. and right? decide what a kid needs. Like, the use of labels does not identify an individual's unique need. And in fact, it encourages a perception that all individuals in a category have the same characteristics. You know, I mean, I think that they're, they're um, there. It's really powerful, their position statement. So.
0: I love it. Well, I want to thank you for, for this great conversation. Um, I certainly get that you're committed to helping children, to making everybody be eligible for the best you know, yeah. learning, education, the right? All,
1: every individual is eligible at progress parade. There's no criteria except that you need us. <laughs> <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> so.
0: And uh, we will have, uh, we will have the, the, the URL of your business in the show notes. So parents can check you out and uh, reach out to you perhaps if they have any questions. Um, And uh, yeah, I really appreciate uh, you uh, uh, having this discussion with me around ADHD and schools. And I wanna thank you for your time.
1: Thank you so much, it's been a pleasure.